Hi, Eric. Hey, Aaron. So as we've said in the past, we're proud members of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. We most certainly are. Authors of fine statements such as the following. I'm listening. <laughs> this is on page 95 of our reference book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. And this was an, a letter published by Interior Secretary Stuart Udall, who had written to the First Presidency urging greater LDS participation in the civil rights movement. And it's a letter to the editor in Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. And this is what he said, criticizing the continuation of the priesthood ban or the ban on blacks from holding the priesthood. Yes. The issue must be resolved by clear and explicit pronouncements. This was in 1967. And decisions that come to grips with the imperious truths of the contemporary world. It must be resolved because we are wrong. And it is time and it is past the time when we should have seen the right. A failure to act here is sure to demean our faith, damage the minds and morals of our youth, and undermine the integrity of our Christian ethic. Every Mormon knows that his church teaches the day will come when the Negro will be given full fellowship. I saw you pause as you decided whether to quote directly or not. <laughs> I don't know what I should do. The day will come when the black well, People? it's not as bad as what Joseph Fielding Smith said in the National Magazine <laughs> that he wrote himself. He wasn't quoted. It was something he wrote. So, anyway, surely that day has come, referring to the day that the band would be ended. And it hadn't. It was 1967. Yeah, and, and 10 years left. And they still had 10 years to go. So, yeah, today's topic, it's Black History Month. And the, um, well, this is what we should be talking about, I think, is the... Uh, priesthood ban in the church it's of not, Jesus christ of latter-day yeah, saints black history in our faith is not as cheerful as it might be yeah to be fair it's not cheerful in a lot of places well that's um, true but aren't we supposed to be better than a lot of places that's true <laughs> the household of faith and all that well I mean, I the book to... of mormon could not be more clear that racism is bad and yet we're we're the last ones to the party it feels like um, right. Hate, yeah. So we're talking about the priesthood ban, and we're going to give a few definitions in a second. But um, I have to say, I'm really nervous, and um, I don't want to screw it up. And what the only thing that's comforting me as we jump into this topic is that we're not very important. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I, I've kind of resigned myself to knowing that I will probably say something, maybe maybe not anything that I'm embarrassed about today, but something I'll be embarrassed about in five years from now, as I hopefully grow more and more enlightened as I live my life. At least that's the hope. I hope that's the direction I'm going. Um, and I hope that people will be kind, because um, we're going to try to be kind. We're going to be try to be kind to people who did terrible things and try to be understanding of the people who suffered because of those terrible things and and all the people who were caught in the middle who weren't sure which terrible thing was the worst terrible thing um, and frankly got it wrong a lot of the time we're using as our as our guide again 
this section on the life of David O. McKay. David O. McKay was president of the church between 1950 and 1969 um, and was pretty middle of the road at the time in terms of civil rights and, um, uh, you know, just opinion towards black people in general. And middle of the road for the time is not great for now. No. <laughs> so, um, but I feel like we need to start with some definitions. Like, um, I think we need to define the priesthood first. I think we need to define what the ban was when it started and how it lasted. And we need to talk about the 1978 revelation, which ended it. Okay. I only really have one question that I want to answer though. And we're not going to be able to answer it, but I want to talk about it. Okay. And it's the only question I think that anybody who has studied this topic has grappled with. And that question is very simple. Why did it take till 1978? That is. I, yeah. I have an answer to that question. But I'm not real happy with it. I think it's, I think it's honest and probably it's certainly true in, I hope it's not the greatest truth, but it's the only answer that makes sense to me. So let's start then with the priesthood. What's the priesthood? Well, there's a few different definitions, but I think for our purposes today, um, calling it the authority to act in God's name and specifically in the performing of ordinances is the key aspect here. The ability, because, um, and to not just perform ordinances, but to run congregations to run the church the authority to run the church by the way we're not going to talk about women in the priesthood like at all in this oh I, we might we might we might i have a i have a comment comparing nigeria to hong kong but that can wait okay but it is surely deserving of its own topic um, <laughs> let's focus on racism i guess today <laughs> okay so the priesthood so yeah it's <laughs> the power and authority to act in god's name um i have a or I used to have, I might still have it somewhere, a card that tells me my line of authority. This is something that is fairly unique to the LDS church, as far as I'm aware, where essentially I can, you know, I was ordained a priest by my dad, and then that goes back all the way to, um, you know, Joseph Smith, who was ordained by John the Baptist, right, who visited yeah. Joseph Smith in um, the 1800s and restored the priesthood by the laying on of hands. And it was a literal transfer. Well, I don't know about transfer. I don't, and literal might even be the wrong word because it's very symbolic. <laughs> it's a symbolic um, granting of authority by God to do stuff in his name. Um, and I can... Coincidentally, Aaron, yeah. this is not important. Yeah, but coincidentally, uh, as I was looking for something else about an hour ago, um, I found someone wrapping their line of authority. Um, so, I'll, okay, that I is can provide not... that link. It's a it's a white Mormon wrapping their line of authority. So, if, if that doesn't prove that all's right in the world now, I don't know what will. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something that's really funny. That's okay. going to be the second citation in the show notes. All right. Right underneath the David O. McKay book, because we haven't talked about anything yet. And it gets... Oh, you do them in order. <laughs> we do them in order. <laughs> yes. David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism by 
Gregory A. Prince and William Robert Wright, the marvelous book we are exploring this uh, season. Oh, that's great. And there's okay. a reason we've taken so long to get to chapter four, isn't it? Isn't this chapter four? I think it's chapter four because it's scary. That's why, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. also long. It is rather long. Okay, so the so black people couldn't hold the priesthood. That's the second definition, the ban, right? Yes. <laughs> why? There's no good reason. We don't know why. And one of the things that irritated me is that um, for a long time, they blamed it on Joseph Smith. Yeah. Which is ironic because you won't blame polygamy on Joseph Smith, but you're going to blame this on him. Like <laughs> something's, yeah. We're going to stop. The revolution in history was really important for Latter day Saints, I think. <laughs> We're going to stop at this point and mention that the church in 2013 put out a gospel topic on this subject and it's required reading. So look for the link in the show notes. Maybe pause the podcast and go read it. It's on the church of Jesus Christ.org. You know, it's and it's called Race and the Priesthood. And it's required reading because a lot of the nonsense that is under discussion in this chapter that was freely spoken by members of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency and BYU professors is explicitly refuted yeah. in this gospel topics essay. All the reasons important. that I just that we could mention here, folkloric as it's as they're described in the chapter, are as you say disavowed. And it's all stuff about, I don't even want to mention it. It's all nonsense about, you know, prehistory and The interesting thing and, about that stuff is it is a theory that can only exist because of our unique theology. Um, uh -huh. And because of that, it's an extremely Mormon form of racism. Yeah, how do you mean? And, well, because most Christians don't preach a pre-existence. And so the idea that you were somehow less in the pre-existence, and that explains why you were less in this life, is not a form of racism that other Christians could engage in. It's, it's uniquely available to us to engage in this form of racism. And so it requires a, um, it requires a Latter-day Saint to respond to this um, uniquely Latter-day Saint uh, failure of Christianity if you don't mind that expression. Well, I think it's a good way to describe it. Um, interestingly, President McKay was one of the people who was least, of, who was least influenced by this idea, this theological inf um, underpinning. Um, he was, we're going to talk later about three specific ways that he actually worked to, to um, eat around at the edge of the priesthood ban, for lack of a better term. Right. Yeah. And one of them comes from this from the disavowal, you know, of a lot of these, of uh, maybe of at least, like he originally used to believe in this stuff, but then he stopped talking about it. And it seems pretty clear at the end that he had moved away from it. Yeah, I don't want to read too much into things that McKay did not express explicitly. Yeah. But it really feels like it was stuff he repeated until he really took a moment to think about it. That's right. That's a good way to describe it. Um, and if, if we don't do any, if nothing else, the, what good does, uh, does it do for us to have a conversation about this? I hope, 
the I, a lot of the I, a lot of these ideas only become weird when you start thinking about them right <laughs> well that's that's the great thing about being human right is you never actually have to think about anything you can just accept the things you've heard and repeat them the rest of your life and pass them down to your children without ever thinking about them and a lot of horrible things happen because of that so the ban the ban was put into place sometime around brigham young's time which was after Joseph Smith, there were actually were um, black people ordained to the priesthood during Joseph Smith's time as a prophet. Um, some of them came to Utah, if I remember right. That's correct. And um, but yeah, Brigham Young instituted a policy um, sometime around there. And it's origin By the way, is if a I bit unclear. A, huh? Oh, I was going to make a, I just realized this is a great opportunity for me to make a uh, literature pitch. Oh, okay. Hit it. So uh, Margaret Blair Young and Darius Gray um, are two Latter-day Saint authors. Um, Darius is a, a black member of the church who joined the church while the ban was still in place. Uh, Margaret Blair Young is, is um, white. She is, uh, and they're both writers and Margaret's work is really great. I recommend any of her solo work also. Um, but she and Darius worked together on the Standing on the Promises series, which explores the true stories of uh, early Black Latter-day Saints in the way that, say, the Work in the Glory books did for your more traditional pioneer stories. Um, and it follows them through um, the first few decades of church history. And so um, definitely recommend those books. Um, and also, fun fun fact about Darius Gray, um, the, the name Darius, of course, comes from the Bible, but most English speakers will pronounce it uh, Darius. He's a, a, a Persian king. I didn't look this up ahead of time. I think he's a Persian king. Anyway, some sort of king in the Bible, and uh, not, not a Jewish king. And, um, and Thomas S. Monson, you've heard of him. He, or, oh, wait, oh, shoot. Aaron, I don't know if this story is about President Monson or President Hinckley. I think it's about President Monson, but I might be wrong. So before you go citing this in your scholarly papers, do your own research. Um, but the president of the church, whichever one it was, um, reached a point where he referred to the uh, character in the Bible as Darius because of his association with Darius Gray and how much he admired the man. He no yeah. longer could say Darius. It was <laughs> Darius. <laughs> um, excellent. Okay, so you've got this ban kind of got put into place back then. And uh, this article, this 2013 article from the church, essentially um, just, you know, it, there's no, there's nothing to it. The reason why blacks couldn't hold the priestess was, priesthood was because of racist reasons. And just like everything else that they had to deal with, the church was, maybe not the church, but the people of the church were, were no different. It was a product of it. You can't even say it was a product of its time. I don't like the phrase product of its time because it's, D dismissive and it it kind of has a, a hint of like i won't say forgiveness but like understanding in it well and the thing that upsets me the most about saying that is um the entire purpose of this church the entire raison d'etre is of our church is that we believe that we are led by god in a more literal way than other people we are supposed to be led by revelation and Therefore, we really ought to try a little harder not to be just products of our time. Yeah. That's, that's what's great about Joseph Smith is uh, I really, I mean, 
he was definitely a product of his time, but you can definitely see him reaching beyond his time. And sometimes it's frustrating to read these stories and feel like not enough people are trying to reach beyond their time. The ban lasted all the way through to 1978, where it was lifted by President Spencer W. Kimball and um, by way of a revelation. And it was very clearly a, um, a revelation. Um, if you read the account of it, you, the, they talk about essentially the, you know, it felt a lot like a revelation. <laughs> um, let's see well, and it gets canonized. And it does get canonized. And it so many people, canonized. including President McKay, said it couldn't be changed until there was a revelation. And there was, and then that did happen. Um, and boy, was it met with rejoicing. Oh, so many people were relieved. Um, well, and there were also people who left the church. This I don't know much about. Um, I think that's because that's a story we would rather not tell. And I think there was less of it. I think there was much more rejoicing than not. Um, but yeah, some people did leave the church over this. Okay, yeah. So canonized meaning it's part of the Doctrine and Covenants. Yes. Um, it's actually the last thing that's been canonized. Yeah, um, I think that's correct. Let's start. I want to read from the opening parts of the chapter, chapter four. Okay, let's hear it. Even though, sorry, even those whose own memories extend to the 1950s and earlier are shocked as they revisit in detail the manner in which African-Americans retreated in the United States. Until 1954, with the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education, Segregation and discrimination were the law of the land, and states and cultures differed only in the degree of their racism. The Latter-day Saints, whose very presence, presence in the Great Basin was the result of being a persecuted minority driven at gunpoint from Missouri and Illinois, were nonetheless intolerant of blacks. This attitude was, in part, due to their being products of their time, and in part, to a tenant of their religion carried over from the pre-Civil War era that excluded blacks from the church's lay priesthood and thus gave ready justification to those who inclinations were already racist. Second paragraph. During David O. McKay's administration, two separate strands, each with a separate agenda and outcome, were closely intertwined. The first was civil rights, and on that issue, David O. McKay was clearly a product of his time and locale, resistance to change and unprogressive. The second strand was priesthood. And on this issue, in a story that has never been told, he struggled, struggled against the policy developed beginning with Brigham Young that forbade the ordination of worthy black men, repeatedly seeking divine guidance. So, two aspects to the story of, of the McKay's part of, of this. And the first aspect is civil rights, right? And the chapter is very interesting and, and you can kind of read it yourself, good reader, and learn about his lack of interaction on civil rights. He didn't legislate against civil rights, but he didn't really support it. And as we learned in the communist chapter um, uh, episode earlier this year, he had leanings towards Ezra Taft Benson's um, attitude 
that the civil rights movement was um, founded in communism. So he, he had kind of a, an ear to that idea that um, that uh, this conspiracy theory. This might be one more thing where the over-the-topness of Ezra Taft Benson moderated David O. McKay's previous feelings about things. Mm-hmm. Um, but didn't, um, didn't let it guide his policy on civil rights, but didn't really pursue civil rights either, right? Which is surprising because in every aspect of David O. McKay's life, he was just this person that was really pro- progressive. He was an intellectual. He was well-educated, right? We, did, we had a whole section on tolerance last time, this ecumenical outreach broadcasting, right? He really worked hard in many, many ways. But on this particular issue, on civil rights, he was kind of preserving the status quo. So uh, that's kind of the story on that strand. But the other strand, I think, is more, is more interesting is that he, he really, like I said before, ate away at the priesthood band, weakened it, and kind of laid this foundation. People weren't really aware that, he, that this happened for its removal later. So it's at this point that I want to introduce a bit of a cast of, of characters, right? Okay. And these are people that were in his inner circle in this time. Ezra Taft Benson, who we've already mentioned before, and who we love, as we've, disc- as we've mentioned previously. All of these men were, you know, men of the Lord, right? And one of the things that it says later in the chapter is that if David O. McKay had moved on the priesthood ban, it's possible that these men would have fallen in line as they had many times before on other topics, right? It's possible. It's yeah, possible. I mean, I, and I think that if there had been more voices, I, I really think David O. McKay wanted to end the ban. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, looking at the evidence, it feels that way. Um, but there's no I, direct evidence. There's no... There's no statement in a diary saying, I want to end the priesthood ban. No, but he was he definitely moving it. in that direction. And he, he did get rid hard. of one of the most um, looked down upon doctrines in American law was the idea of the one drop doctrine, that any black ancestry at all meant that you were black um, and had all the legal disadvantages that that entails. And that was adopted by some in the church. And it's something that David O. McKay pushed against. And um, if you weren't sure of your ancestry, he would allow you to, you know, hold the priesthood and be bad and be married in the temple. If, uh, if there was, if your blackness was merely a matter of rumor, he would allow, I mean, it's not a great step forward, but it's a step forward. Um, can I read a famous paragraph from Martin Luther King? You can. So this is from um, the letter from Birmingham jail which um, I'm sure many of our readers read in high school. Um, he's in now, jail. Now it's a little unfair because you actually teach high school. For me, high school was a long time ago. <laughs> That's true. I actually, I actually, I'm not sure I've ever taught this letter, um, but I have a lot of students who have read it and I do, I have like referenced ideas in it, but I don't know if I've ever actually taught it. So I guess I am, have no uh, boasting rights here. <laughs> But this is a short paragraph and it's, it's a fairly famous one. And I think it really gets to the problem that we're talking about today. 
uh, Martin Luther King Jr. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by this oppressor. I suppose for our purposes, we might change freedom to priesthood. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. Um, there's, there's the phrase like the well-meaning white liberal, which uh, I don't know if that's actually MLK's words or not, but this idea that the person who's on the side of the oppressed people, but says, let's do this the, the nice way, let's do it the patient way, let's wait, let's make it happen when everybody's ready. Nothing ever happens when you do things that way. It takes a, it's just takes way too long. Um, and um, I, and it's, it's embarrassing that it took us till 1978 as a church to okay. undo this policy. So let's talk a little bit of, about some of the reasons why it took till 78, because there is some reasons why it happened. And that's because after President David O. McKay died, he was succeeded, 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 succeeded yeah. by two people, um, President Joseph Fielding Smith and Harold B. Lee. These are the next two people in his inner circle that we want to talk about. And they were two people who pushed very hard against keeping things in place as they were, keeping yeah. the ban in place. I heard a long time ago, I don't remember where I heard it, but someone said like they were convinced that the reason President Lee was president for such a short amount of time was that he was uh, given a chance by the Lord to overturn the priesthood ban and he wouldn't do it. So off he went. That's and you know, apocryphal. Joseph Fielding Smith wasn't prophet very long either. So they <laughs> that had seems their pretty chance, maybe. <laughs> that seems pretty apocryphal. <laughs> oh, it's certainly apocryphal, but I, I find uh, I find a certain appeal to this idea. <laughs> so let's see. Yeah, Mc, yeah, McKay died in seventy in sixty nine, and then you had Joseph Fielding Smith, and then Harold B. Lee, who died in seventy three, and then Spencer W. Kimball took over, right? But yes. these two people were were, um, yes, yeah, as you say, strongly opposed. And it's and if I remember right, um, Harold Billy actually believed in these theological things that we were describing earlier, right? These ideas about the preexistence and black people that have been disavowed. If I remember right, do I remember uh, right? Well, I, I don't remember it saying that explicitly, but I'm sure he did because what's his other option his other option is to say i am racist it's much better if you can say it's not me god is the racist one i'm just doing what god wants yeah he said <laughs> his daughter confided to a friend my daddy said that as long as he's alive they'll never have the priesthood a, pre yeah. a prediction that proved to be pred correct <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah so but like i said before we have to be really careful here, Eric, because we there are, there is there's baby in this bathwater. These were <laughs> these were we don't want to throw presidents of the church under the bus. Yes, they did not end the priesthood ban, and they advocated against ending the priesthood ban, and that is was that wasn't right. <laughs> but they did lots of good things. I just want to be careful how yeah. we state things. Well, and I don't really 
disagree with that. Um, but I do think that it is okay to unequivocally state that good people can have egregious blind spots that should not perhaps, um, you know, certainly shouldn't be overlooked, historically speaking, and shouldn't be forgiven in the sense, in the sense that um, we don't want to forgive them their, their sins and their errors as an excuse for us engaging in similar mistakes ourselves. Do you, know, do you understand what I mean? Like, I I'm not saying we shouldn't love them and forgive them as human beings, because that's what we're called upon to do as Christians. But um, we shouldn't say this was okay, because they were people of our time, because that then becomes an excuse that's available to us. I know, man. I mean, you know, part of the reasons I want to be so careful here is because, you know, I do sustain the prophets. And it's hard for me to admit that some of them might have just been wrong about one particular issue, right? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how to say it differently than that. Um, Can we talk about J. Reuben Clark for a minute? Yeah, please Would do. Would that be okay? Yeah. So um, J. Reuben Clark um, was uh, not an active member of the church for a long period of his life. Um, and, and during that time, he was uh, solicitor general. He was ambassador to Mexico. He had all sorts of important jobs in government. And then um, his wife, uh, if I understand the story correctly, essentially gave him an ultimatum and he returned to church. And shortly after that, he was called into the first presidency, mm -hmm. which um, even though David O. McKay had been a general authority for over two decades longer than him, put um, J. Reuben Clark above him in the hierarchy until President McKay became the prophet. Now, um, J. Reuben Clark um, is one of these people we're talking about. He was in favor of the priesthood ban and he pushed hard for it. And, um, and he's an interesting case study because um, he was, uh, he's rather noted for being an American, America first kind of guy. He, uh, in his, as the valedictorian of the University of Utah, he gave a speech in which he said, quote, America must cease to be the cesspool into which shall drain the foul sewage of Europe. Um, that's not very nice thing not very to say. Nice. Uh, when he's, uh, and then later he, when he's ambassador in Mexico, um, he, he, sell, he tells people, and this is a, a speech he gave to members of the church as a member of the First Presidency. He says about being ambassador to Mexico, that when he went to Mexico, he had a great prejudice against the Mexican people. However, by being there and like living with them and serving with them, he came to love them. And a similar thing happened with the Japanese. Um, he was very anti um Japanese in the early part of the 20th century, but um, he came around on that. Uh, he, he overcame that racism. Like J. Reuben Clark's life is kind of a case study of someone who constantly was overcoming his prejudices, thinking that they were good and appropriate prejudices, and he, he couldn't generalize them, right? It took him, uh, by the end of his life, he, um, he seemed to be much more friendly to um, black people, although he was still in favor of the priesthood ban because for, for doctrinal reasons. Um, he never really got over his anti-Semitism. Uh, he couldn't see that, the, he couldn't generalize the lesson he learned, like it's possible to love Mexican people to the Jews, for instance. Um, it, he, he never quite figured out that this is the same process, like you can love everybody. Um, 
and I think he's a really interesting case study for what we're talking about here because that's what that's what we're asking people to do in this case historical figures so it's a little late for them but we're asking people to um grow up right and and recognize the errors of their ways that are the errors of their times and become more than what they are and more charitable and more more christian and it it takes a lifetime sometimes because we just can't see our own blind spots which is why i think you and i are a little nervous about this episode because we may well reveal some blind spots that we're not don't recognize we even have you know and i i think i speak for both of us aaron when i say like we're two people who are trying to recognize and overcome our blind spots the last person that i want to bring up is hubie brown ah so the hero of the story the hero of the story a liberal progressive apostle yeah part of the first thank presidency. you canada for sending him to us <laughs> <laughs> so mckay was president for nearly two decades for the first decade nearly all of the voices he had near him were opposed to um, expanded rights for blacks and for and for preserving the priesthood priesthood ban preserving the priesthood brand <laughs> but you know what say it however you like <laughs> um but yeah, President uh, President Brown was called, and he advocated for removing it many, many times. There are several examples in the chapter where they're having meetings about an issue. For example, the church in Nigeria, right? And you know, President Brown is the one that says, "Well, if blacks can't hold the priesthood in Nigeria, and there are thousands of people." who have read our literature and want to be baptized, right? This was like in, 60, in, the, in the early 60s. Then why don't we just give them the Aaronic priesthood? <laughs> you know, for those who aren't in the church, that's the, um, the priesthood lets you baptize people. You know, it's kind of the lesser priesthood is what we call it. That, you know, as a starter set, McKay realized that if they did that, it'd just be, might as well just give them all the priesthood. But, um, he was he consistently argued in favor, and when pre, and the, at the end of the story, when President McKay di died, he was demoted, right, out of the first mm -hmm. presidency by President um, Joseph Fielding Smith, and it was the first time somebody had done that since since Brigham Young died. So for like over a hundred years before then. So um, he worked while he was in the first presidency, he worked really hard for removing the priesthood ban, didn't get there and was essentially, you know, released when the next person came along. So a very interesting person. So, okay. So that's that's the cast. What did President McKay do? Well, he did three things. The first, I mean, among many things, right? It's oversimplifying to say he did three, but the chapter focuses on on three. Um, he eliminated folkloric explanations of the policy, right? But essentially, and this was critical, he defined it as a policy and not a doctrine, right? Yes, which, as the book points out, is 
a distinction a lot of people didn't recognize. He had a conversation with a, a man named Sterling McMurrin, who we've mentioned before in the um, chapter on tolerance, um, who was also a, a liberal and progressive uh, person in 1954, where he explained this. He said, this is a policy and, uh, and policies could someday be changed, right? Well, I don't know if he said it like that, but he did say that it was a policy. Um, and, you know, McMurrin um, had that information and kind of sat on it until the late 60s. I don't know if he sat on it, but nobody really knew about it until the late 60s. And when it was published, it actually had this whirlwind of activity in the right before McKay died. The church kind of released this statement, you know, <laughs> about the, uh, the priesthood ban. And uh, it was all kind of precipitated by this conversation. Um, the second one is that he tried to open a church in Nigeria, like we talked about. And it, it didn't really work, did it? And no, this is actually, oh, well, you first, you first. I was going to say, they, they tried really, really hard. But um, so they had, they had thousands of people in Nigeria that wanted to become members of the church. They had converted themselves, but they didn't have the priesthood. In 61, they sent a fellow named Williams in to explain things that um, they couldn't, they, they could be baptized, but not hold the priesthood. The missionaries would have to essentially run the church there. And they were cool with it. They were like, fine, we'd rather be members of the church than, and not have the priesthood than not be members of the church, right? Yeah. So they were going to do that. That's great faith. That's great Which, faith. May I throw in real quick, um, Sunday, uh, at the at the local Genesis Group's fireside this last Sunday, you were there, Aaron. Mm -hmm. I saw you on Zoom. Uh, Ron McLean spoke. He uh, joined the church in the 80s, about 10 years after the end of the priesthood ban. And he shared a story, actually, when he first met Darius Gray that I mentioned earlier and said to him, like, I don't understand how you could have joined the church before like I could never have joined the church before and I didn't write down what Darius said but it was something along the lines of like if you have faith you just walk by faith and I can't imagine a greater faith than the saints in Nigeria who um, were willing to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ even though they were told that they didn't really deserve it in the same way other people did and that's a that is a, that is a kind of faith that, frankly, I just can't even imagine having. I mean, you can't hold the priesthood, right? You can't have the same blessings that we have. This, right? These eternal family things that we like talking about yeah, in the temple, you. that's not for you, right? Well, why? Well, it's because <laughs> of such and such terrible racist reasons, right? Yes. Um, okay. But, you know, the Book of Mormon is true, and I feel like Joseph Smith was a prophet, so I still want to be baptized. That's, yeah. that's incredible. It's incredible. Um, but also, holy smokes, what a policy. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, right? As the church is expanding there, this, a similar story is just about to occur in Ghana. Um, we have, we, we're discussing opening the church in Cuba and in Brazil, where this policy is just not going to be tenable. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do about it? And um, well, what they did, and this is the third point, is that 
President McKay reversed this ancestry restriction, right? So in other words, if you have, like you said before, if you have even a little, if you're not really sure if you're black or not, <laughs> <laughs> then you can be baptized anyway before you had to provide documentation right yeah you had to write down that you had no black ancestry and prove it if you're a white south african you had to be able to trace all your bloodlines out of the country back to europe back to europe yeah so he reversed that it had a big impact on the south african mission and then he also set it up so that fijians australian aborigines and Egyptian men could all be, were all exempt from the priesthood, man, the priesthood ban, right? Because they yep, thought away. they had, they, but only after they found evidence that they didn't have African ancestry, which when I read this, I chuckled to myself because if you believe in evolution, <laughs> yeah, um, well, don't we all have African ancestry? Well, and it's double think at this point, right? Like, um, at this point, I feel like church leadership has recognized that this is a bad policy for lots and lots and lots of reasons, yeah. both practical reasons and theological reasons. But a little part of them has always believed in this, and they and just giving up on it is so hard. And okay, well, I want to. So they're go ahead. Doing, but but just both thoughts are present in their mind at the same time, and they're trying to negotiate that. Well, for some people, maybe for President McKay, that's the case, but certainly not for the other apostles yeah. that I mentioned earlier. Maybe not for Alvin Dyer and, and yeah. Joseph Fielding Smith. Who worked so hard not to, to, to keep the ban. Okay, so anyway, the, finishing the, the thing in Nigeria, it didn't really work in the early 60s. Um, there, was a, you know, there was a lot of problems. One was there was a student in California who sent a letter to the Nigerian government and he just told them what the Mormons were doing with the priesthood ban and why, these pseudo-theological reasons. Yeah. And boy, the government didn't like it. And like well, things just ground to a halt. And it took yeah. years to start back up again. <laughs> yes, because, because a wicked policy will have wicked results. <laughs> yeah. And then there was a civil war. This yeah, is, that didn't help. This is pretty interesting to me, though. You know... It looks a bit divine inspiration here to actually not send <laughs> send folks in in the late late sixties mm -hmm. because war was brewing and Williams was recalled in like sixty five, right? And yeah. uh, or and then he has a comment. He was like really surprised. He was really excited to start baptizing people, you know, start ordaining people or no baptizing people. And um, then he was like reflected on it later. It's like, yeah, I was right there. I, I would have been right yeah. there in that war. So that's... Although I think it might be worth pointing out real quick that all the horrible things that happened mid-century in Africa are largely the after effects of colonialism. <laughs> so <laughs> uh. <laughs> might, be, might be worth just throwing that, that, uh, okay. that detail in there. Oh, man. <sighs> all right. Can I give you my I... one paragraph? Uh, comment on women in the priesthood before we move on. This is all I want to say about it. Okay, sure. So one of the things that uh, church leadership did at this moment um, during the Williams era, shall we call it, is they recognized certain uh, people in Nigeria to be the leaders of the congregation, even though they wouldn't be able to be called bishop or stake president or anything along 
like that because they don't have the priesthood. They recognize them as leaders capable of running the church and things didn't really work out that way as you've discussed. Um, but a similar thing is happening now um, in China, in Hong Kong, for instance, um, where almost all the local membership, like the non-expat membership is women. You, they do not have men to call to positions. And so a lot of the leadership in the church in China is women who are recognized as leaders, even though they can't be called branch president or bishop or what have you. So there's a parallel here, yeah. uh, which I think is interesting, and I'm not going to say anything else about it. Yeah, we'll reserve that for another time, perhaps. Um, so anyway, yeah, there's some, there's some history. Um, President McKay, like I said, he ate around the edges, but he didn't reverse the ban. And he prayed hard about it. And this is the part that I don't understand, Eric. I believe yeah. in God. Right? I do. Yeah. And I believe in a just um, Heavenly Father and in a just system. And it is hard to understand the following quote. Mm. The most remarkable account came from Richard Jackson, an architect who served in the church building from 1968 through the time of McKay's death in 1970. So this is a story from the architect. Um, this would have been right before McKay died, I think, if I understand the timing here. I remember one day that President McKay came into the office. We could see that he was very much distressed. He said, I've had it. I'm not going to do it again. Somebody asked what? He said, well, I'm badgered constantly about giving the priesthood to the Negro. I've inquired of the Lord repeatedly. The last time I did, the last time I did it was late last night. I was told with no discussion not to bring the subject up again with the Lord not to bring the subject up with the Lord again, that the time will come, but it will not be my time, and to leave the subject alone. We were all, of course, a little dumbstruck. I don't think it has ever been written that that happened. I've never told anybody about it. I can still see him coming in with a bit of a distraught appearance, which was unusual for the president, for President McKay. He always appeared as if he had everything under control. So... Why? So this, this seems to say that the Lord, that David O. McKay was striving with the Lord to end the priesthood ban and was told no. Am I understanding this right? That's definitely what the words are saying. Okay. Yes. What? I mean, I have some thoughts here, but why didn't God say yes? And I'm going to- I have a number of speculations, but they're just purely speculative. Okay. Let's take this at his word, right? Let's assume that this architect didn't make up the story, all right? Let's assume that our good friends who we've never met, but want to someday, Gregory Prince and Robert Wright- <laughs> Have um, have done have got this story correctly cited, right? 
and that let's further assume that David O. McKay was a prophet of God and really was told by the Lord to wait on the, on the ban. We don't know why. It's not written down why. It's possible the Lord didn't say why. Why? Well, like I said, I have some speculative reasons, but they're purely speculative and they reflect my own opinions more than anything that I know historically. But it's troublesome for sure. I'm going to tell you why I think it is. It's because okay. the next two prophets were already set. But God could have just knocked them down ahead of time. <clears throat> I mean, what I, I, I don't know, but are were their roles as president of the church so important that they had to, I mean, maybe, maybe they were, but yeah, if, if they had to be the prophet and it's, it would have been, they would have had to have a real change of heart for this to have worked. The Utah was one of the places where civil rights was progressing the least parts of the early parts in the chapter you can really read how the NAACP they were scheduling pickets and you know and the laws weren't really getting passed it seems kind of slow to have moved along is it is it possible <laughs> <laughs> oh man I don't even want to say it I might edit this well let, let me tell you an anecdote and said um, okay. I think we have a sense of where you're headed and none of us like that concept um there is a personal history in the berkeley ward library where we used to record these but um currently i don't know about you but i'm not spending a lot of time in the church building um but i have spent a lot of time in the library and i have read a lot of the things that are on the shelves and among these scenes is a personal history by a former member of the berkeley ward and it includes an anecdote of when he was in um salt lake city and um it tells an anecdote of these African dignitaries, um, delegates or ambassadors or something who were visiting Salt Lake City. And the, they had rooms booked at the Hotel Utah, which was owned by the church. And when the Hotel Utah discovered at the very last minute after these people are already in town that these were black men, they canceled their reservations and they had to go stay somewhere else. Um, this, I don't, because I can't look it up and cite it for you directly. I, I'm going to have to guess, but I want to say this is the 1950s. Well, that story is actually in this chapter. Is it really? Yeah. I, I don't remember it. Mm -hmm. It's in the early part of the chapter. There's a, where it talks about hotels and civil rights. I do remember Marriott, the senior, yeah. not liking, not liking civil rights legislation. Yeah. But there, they specifically talk about a group of people who were denied access at a hotel. Yeah, um, I mean, it was. I was at a um, presentation um, not so long ago uh, about redlining, which was a, pro a theme that I had not heard of before. It was a presentation given by um, Richard Rothstein, whose book *The Color of Law* and is about redlining. Um, is as has sort of like opened a lot of our eyes as to what um, was going on. And essentially all we need to know is that 
Um, there were policies set up everywhere, including right here in the liberal Bay Area that prevented um, black citizens from living in neighborhoods and taking advantage of loans that were uh, and mortgage help that was offered to GIs. And um, the neighborhoods that my in-laws grew up in right here in the Bay Area were redlined. Um, they were they were neighborhoods built with racism intentionally built into the system. And the reasons have to do with like Southern senators who wouldn't support the program unless, unless racism was built into it, segregation was built into it. Uh, but none of these excuses are happy or satisfactory. But the fact is um, it's easy when you're from the West to say, ah, oh, well, we never had slavery here. Uh, we're not the South, we're not the Confederacy. Um, it's easy to say similar things if you're in the North, but the fact is that these policies and attitudes and beliefs um, affect the history of every every corner of our country. I mean, and as, even though this book is called The Rise of Modern Mormonism, and a big part of its thrust is how the church began to truly go international in a more meaningful way, um, ultimately it's the book starts with it as an American church, and really it kind of ends with it as an American church. And a lot of our failures as a country are therefore reflected in the church. And this is one of the things that we as a God-led people need to grapple with. You can see redlining even in ward boundaries, or at least I don't know if they're still that way, but that was mentioned during the fireside. Do you remember? Yes, I do. And I've heard similar stories as well. They were in Oakland. Speaking of redlining in Oakland, here's a fun, here's a fun fact for you, Aaron. Mm -hmm. um, East Oakland, which um, carries with it a hint of um, the more black part of town. Um, if you say East Oakland, people know that you're talking about the black part of town. That's the part of town that used to be known as Brooklyn, named after the ship that the first saints arrived <laughs> in the Bay Area in, and because that was where they first settled. So um, yeah, that's the Mormon part of town. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Um, the second initiative, apparently at the time as the McMurrin episode, involved the direct frontal challenge to the policy. Page 80. Leonard R. Arrington, who later became church historian, described it. A special committee of the 12 appointed by President McKay in 1954 to study the issue of the priesthood ban concluded that there was no sound scriptural basis for the policy, but that the church membership was not prepared for its reversal. Personally, I knew something about the apostolic study because I had heard Adam S. Benyon, who was a member of the committee, refer to the work in an informal talk he made to the Mormon seminar in Salt Lake City on a certain date. McKay, Benyon said, had pled with the Lord without result and finally concluded the time was not yet ripe. Three things are significant about Arrington's account. This is early in the chapter. First, as he had told McMurrin, McKay saw the issue as changeable policy rather than immutable doctrine. Second, as he had stated in South Africa, even though it was a policy that was changeable, it would require a revelation from the Lord to change it. He did not make it clear why he felt the revelation was necessary. That is, whether it was because the policy had been instituted by the Lord in the first place, we now believe, uh, this is me talking, mm -hmm. we believe that's not to be the case, right? That's correct. Or whether this man-made policy had become so firmly entrenched that changing it would require 
the force of revelation to convince church members that it needed to be changed. And finally, apparently for the first time, he took the matter directly to the divine source. It would not be the last time that he did so, and not always did he achieve the same result. This idea that the church just wasn't ready to have the ban removed is the only answer to my earlier question that seems reasonable, and I hate it. It's why I cited Martin Luther King Jr., because that's the complaint he makes, right? White people aren't ready for Black people to be treated nicely, so we better not do it yet. And it's a really unsatisfying explanation. I just don't, not only do I hate it, I just, I don't know that I, that I buy it. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I've been, I've been thinking about this um, and, and similar questions. Um, I think everybody listening knows of a ward somewhere in the church, possibly their own, where there's, there's an argument among members of the ward whether masks should be required. Mm -hmm. um, for all the same stupid reasons that that argument is happening in the nation as a whole. And I, and I hear a story like that, or I hear a story about like white members weren't ready to have a black bishop or whatever. I hear these kind of stories and I think to myself, well, if that's the case, um, what's so terrible with God still doing, telling us to do the right thing and the people who refuse to accept the right thing leaving? I mean, this happens all the time anyway. People leave because um, they're bothered by something. Why, why is, it, is it actually worse if people are bothered by something that, you know, they should repent of, like being racist? Um, and that is a very prideful thing for me to say, because it, because obviously I'm assuming that, um, there is no truth that could be revealed that would shake my testimony. And it's only bad people who would have this happen to them. Um, but I just don't see any way reading the book of Mormon and looking at Joseph Smith and just discussing truths, which we feel in our hearts to be true to justify the priesthood ban for even a second longer then it had to exist and it didn't have to exist at all. Why did it take President Kimball five years? So, okay, well, I said I wasn't going to speculate, but you want to have a speculation? Sure. Here's one. Um, I think that it required a lot of bravery on the part of President McKay to receive a yes answer. Um, I don't know that it, I think perhaps if he had really truly 100% been willing and brave enough to accept all the responsibilities that would come with that yes answer, he might have gotten it. And maybe it took President Kimball a while to build up that courage. I don't know. That's that's a possibility, right? Kay was also real that, old. He was also very old. And, and I mean, if he'd done it, you know, in 54, it would have been different than doing it in 68 when he was on his way out. Um, but um, it was at the point of his life where he had good days and bad days. I mean, the fact is there were a lot of people who real and people high in the hierarchy who really believed in these racist um, faux doctrines. And it takes, you know, one of the things I love about reading this book 
is that we see that um, the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency, that they're real people and they have real disagreements um, and, and even battles sometimes about important issues. Um, and I, I appreciate that they try to show us a united front. Um, like, I think I'm, I don't have a problem with that, but I think it's also really helpful for us to read this book of a time 70 years ago and see that these are people grappling with difficult issues and they don't necessarily always agree. And it's great when they come to a conclusion, but I mean, what did President, the way it worked for President Kimball is there were members of the Quorum of the Twelve that did not agree to it until he had a written revelation. Like they talk about maybe the membership of the church wouldn't accept it without the force of revelation, but the Quorum of the Twelve didn't accept it until there was a, the force of written revelation. Again, when they got it, it was powerful. You read the accounts of them like feeling the spirit super strong and like knowing that this was real and this was the way to do it and it was the time. I do want to mention two other precedents. Neither of them erase my feeling of, of agreement with you that I just, it just feels like they could have done it. If <laughs> The first is that sometimes it takes a lot of people dying off before the church can really be changed. Yes. And the example. That's true of any institution. The example is Moses. And I don't remember if you've mentioned this on the podcast before. Moses, given the Ten Commandments, right? Well, first he was given a different law. <laughs> that didn't work out. Took, brought back the Ten Commandments. The promised land, they were, he was going to guide them to the promised land, and the people weren't good enough. God said, okay, you're going to wander for 40 years. And all of you are, all y'all are going to die off and it's going to be the next generation. <clears throat> then they wouldn't kill a lot of people, which is kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. The story, the story break kind of breaks down for me a little bit. <laughs> they were people of their time, Aaron. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes things don't change in a generation. I really like that answer. Um, yeah, maybe that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, well, good. it's not the end of the story yet. Yeah. We're still working on these issues. I think there's still possible more history to find as well. I mean, oh, I'm sure. we only have a few accounts, even though we have this wonderful book, right? I mean, there are still people alive who were back then, right? There are still people who know the stories. There are still journals that haven't been read through. There are still letters that haven't been found. We could learn more about the details of what happened here. And, and um, I want to reiterate that it's important not to shy away from these questions, right? To hit them front, front on, right? To, to lean into the, to the doubt and the misunderstanding about our church's past. Because if you don't do that, then you're, it's deceptive to you and to the people around you, right? Honest inquiry, scholarship, discussion, and prayer, right? This, these are the things that you really need to do. At the end of the day, I still don't know why it took, went on until 1978. We've been talking for over an hour now, 
and I still don't feel satisfied with anything I've heard. Well, I think that's good. I think that if we felt satisfied, that wouldn't be great. It's not in the Bible, even though some people says it is, but I do think one of the purposes of religion is to afflict the comfortable as well as to comfort the afflicted. And we shouldn't ever be entirely comfortable with some of these things. Um, my friend James uh, last year, James Goldberg um, wrote an essay about some of the lingering effects of, uh, he, I don't think he ever mentions the priesthood ban specifically, but it's a similar kind of issue. Uh, the essay is called Why I Hate White Jesus. <clears throat> and it's about how so much of the iconography in the church is of a Nordic Jesus, right? Um, and that can cause harm. I, I recommend the essay, it's gonna be in the show notes. Um, it, it causes harm to suggest that um, Jesus looks like the vast majority of the American members of the church and not like the rest of the world. Um, it creates a subtle subliminal um, promotion of this sort of accidental racism. When the church came out with the list of, of approved paintings for the foyer, not, not, a, not a great variety in what Jesus looks like in those. And so, so this, this battle isn't over. Um, maybe we no longer explicitly support bias in the church, but um, in our hearts and in our souls, we still have work to do. Dear listener, please um, try to take what we've said in the spirit in which it was intended. Um, the goal of our show is to celebrate the interesting parts of the church, but sometimes we have to be a bit more somber to talk about the history so that we can help it change. And this essay, which I, I did actually get to read before our conversation, and I found it gripping, is from May 2020. And um, it's about racism, racism in the LDS church, right? Today. Today. essentially. It's worth looking at. Now, let's end on a happier note, if you don't mind. If you can find one. Anthony, I love happy notes. Anthony Obina. Tell me about Anthony Obina. Oh, okay. So in seminary, um, because I am clearly a heretic, um, uh, on so we have seminary four days a week right now. It's early morning, which is not as early as normal, but it's before Zoom school. And because we're doing the DNC again, so soon after just having done the DNC, and because although I love church history, um, I find the DNC itself, um, I'm actually enjoying it. I, I am enjoying it, but I do like, I need to supplement it. And so what I've been doing on Thursdays, which is our the last day of the week for seminary, Thursdays we've been exploring um, either another place or another time in church history. And two weeks ago on Thursday, we talked about Ghana and um, the history of the church in Ghana is largely the story of a man named Anthony Obina, who is an astonishing person. Um, he is in a waiting room and sees a copy of a Reader's Digest which has photos of the Salt Lake Temple, which is an important moment for him because he had had a dream 
telling him that to, to be on the lookout for this building. And he didn't know what the building was until he saw the photographs. And he, he reaches out just like our, uh, the Nigerian saints we talked about earlier. He reaches out to church headquarters to get information. Um, he begin, he is converted. He converts his family, he converts his friends. And when the church finally makes it to Ghana, there are congregations ready to be baptized. Um, I think the beautiful thing about this story is that nothing could be more clear than the stories of Nigeria and Ghana and the individuals there um, who have faith as, so similar to um, the founders of the church. Uh, if you read Anthony Obina's story, and, and I certainly encourage you to look for the parallels to Joseph Smith's story. They are numerous. Some of them are different. Anthony Obina is much better educated than Joseph Smith, for instance, but there's so many parallels between their stories. It's impossible to read his story and not see the hand of God acting in a very similar way in another land. And um, we as Latter-day Saints are at the cusp of becoming a truly global international church where um, not just more than half the saints come from or live outside the United States, but it won't be long. It'll be in our lifetimes, Aaron, where we see that diversity reflected at the top levels of church leadership, not, not with a few faces here and there, but in the proportions that represent the actual church. And if we as American saints aren't ready to have, um, you know, an Anthony Obina, for instance, serving as an apostle, then we need to repent. And I think that it, that's an easy thing to do when we're like, um, J. Reuben Clark, and we really get to know the people of these other lands and their stories. And getting to know Anthony Obina, he's passed away now, but in, getting to know people like him are the path to, to um, becoming the people Christ wants us to be. Christ wants us to love everyone, and we can love the people that we know. Okay, next, next time, Eric, which one are we going to do? We're going to do the penultimate chapter, an international church. Yep, chapter 14, um, if you're reading along. First off, that's great. <laughs> We'd love to hear about it. Send us a tweet at Face and Hat. All right, bye. Bye.